1 John chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. We're finishing up a series through 1 John. And so last Sunday, if you were here with us, we had a break from the series, kind of a little bit of a detour into 1 Thessalonians, where we looked at what it means for us to grieve as Christians with hope and the hope that we have a needed and encouraging detour that we took last week, but we're going to continue in 1 John. If you are looking for a message on 1 John chapter 4 as we've gone through it and you missed it, then I would encourage you to go to the the VC podcast feed. You can get the messages from this campus and our South Wilson campus on there each Sunday. Jonas preached through 1 John chapter 4 over there last Sunday. Also, you get our VC podcast that comes out midweek, which is a kind of a a checkpoint for you as you go through the week. Uh, Look back on the sermon kind of in the middle of the week, how are we living it out, but then also some updates and reminders and announcements more in-depth about what's going on in the church, and so it's a great way to stay connected. I would encourage you to check that out. But this morning, we're looking at the testimony, 1 John chapter 5, and so think about that this morning. I thought about how we just love a good courtroom drama. I mean, right now, everybody's focused their attention on Hallmark movies for Christmas, right? But a good courtroom drama, whether it's a book, a TV show, or a movie, there's something about the heightened suspense and high stakes of a legal thriller and specifically a trial that we find captivating, at least until we get called for jury duty. No matter what the format is, whether it's book, movie, whatever, there's almost always a scene in those sorts of things where there's closing arguments that have to be made and the lawyer is up giving this big speech. It's an opportunity to sum up all the witness testimony, to review the evidence presented, and to call upon the jury to decide in their party's favor. Probably the most famous example of that is a real-life one, when O.J. Simpson's attorney recalled the gloves that were presented as evidence with the line, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. A closing argument sums up the case, and it demands a verdict. And as we finish our walk through 1 John this morning, that's the point in which we find ourselves. John's closing argument. He spent the first four chapters of this book pointing us to Jesus, and he's presented us with a number of tests by which we can know if we are children of God. Are we walking in the light? Are we confessing our sin to God? Are we obeying His commandments? Do we love our brothers? Do we hold to what we heard from the beginning? Are we practicing what is right? Are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he weaves all this together, and John presents this compelling case for us. But as his writing comes to an end this morning, he helps us see where each of these tests come together. First John is not a book of legalism. It's not a new law by which we must live if we are Christians. It's a picture of faith working itself out, a picture of faith that makes the case for us to trust in Jesus, to continue to trust in Jesus. And so it demands of us, the book's readers, a verdict. There's just one kind of significant difference between the verdict that John demands of us here and the one that you might be called upon to reach if you ever serve on jury duty and are actually called to serve on a jury in a trial. John doesn't call us here to ask about what someone else has done to answer that question. He calls on us to answer the question for ourselves, what have we done with Jesus? And so for John, the question is, what do you believe about Jesus. And as he starts, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, we read this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that, overcomes the, that has overcome the world, our faith. 
So who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? As 1 John comes to a close, John's position here is clear. The path to victory in life and in this world is through faith in Jesus. And evidence of faith in Jesus is our love for God and his children. That's how we know if we have faith in him. And so the answer to the question he asks in verse 5 is really self-evident. It's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the one who overcomes the world. And so the question for us this morning is, do you believe in Jesus? Your answer to that question will shape everything else about your life and how you live it. Who do you believe Jesus is? John's closing argument is an invitation for us to consider that question this morning, which is admittedly not as much fun maybe as considering others and criticizing others and sitting in judgment of other people. The question isn't, though, what's the person next to me done with Jesus? The question isn't, is the person across the room living up to what it means to follow Jesus? The question for us is, have I believed in Jesus and is there evidence of that faith in my life and in my love for him and my love for others? Right, the answer to what someone else is doing is a safe one for us to explore, right? Because if I ask what you're doing with Jesus and how you're doing in your walk with the Lord, then that doesn't call me to repentance. It doesn't call me to consider where I've fallen short or where God might be trying to grow me and shape me. And so those answers to what others are doing can feel safe, but it's a sense of security that's much less secure than what we find when we trust in Jesus, the security that John points us to here. And so today, as we look at John's closing statement, I invite you to act this morning as the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and let's not focus our judgment on others. Let's allow our text this morning to really interrogate our hearts and to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, is where we're going to focus in the bulk of our time this morning. It says this, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John's closing argument invites us this morning to ask two questions. First, what do the witnesses say? And the second question is, where does the evidence lead? And so we start with the first question, what do the witnesses say? And as John sums up the case, he really points us to three witnesses that he's called to the stand here. And those are the spirit, the water, and the blood. And he tells us that these three agree. And that's important that the three of them agree because biblically, that places John's argument on solid ground. In the Old Testament, a charge was to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Someone couldn't be sentenced on the basis of just one person's testimony. That would have been too easy to corrupt. And so my word against your word wasn't enough. They required confirmation and agreement. Jesus references the same principle in Matthew 18. Paul does the same in 2 Corinthians 13. John's contention here is that three witnesses that he's called, that they corroborate one another's stories, their testimony, that they have their stories straight, that they agree. And so we can trust what they have to say to us. 
So then what do they say, right? John, John starts here with the Spirit, and he tells us the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. He continues here establishing the authority of the witness, the character of the, the witness. And we would certainly say that the Holy Spirit is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. We can trust Him and what He says. But what does the Spirit say? What is this testimony John's pointing us to for that answer? We could turn to a number of places in the Scriptures, places where the Spirit is testifying about various things. But I think here in 1 John, if we want to know what John has in mind, the most logical place for us to go is just to the chapter right before this one, maybe just the column right before this one in your Bible, where 1 John 4, 1 through 6 says this about the Spirit. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what does the Spirit say? John tells us there the Spirit of God says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, which is important. Maybe it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but John seems to think it is. John seems to think it matters so much that he says it's the only way that you can, not the only way, but it's the way that you can tell the difference between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of error. The Spirit of God says Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that Jesus is fully human, that he is a real living, breathing person who walked the earth. Maybe by this time, there were already those who thought of Jesus more as an idea than a historical person. Or maybe John could simply see the danger of such a philosophy finding its way into the church. And if John could, then surely we can today. If Jesus can be abstracted from the physical realm and the natural world, then faith and spirituality can also be abstracted from real life. And if that happens, then I can say I believe one thing spiritually, but I can do something completely different with my life physically. A disembodied Jesus quickly becomes kind of a mascot for whatever we want him to be. And so what does the Spirit say? The Spirit says Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he is a living, breathing, historical person. It was important for John's readers to hear this testimony in the first century, but it remains important for us because just as it did then, a disembodied Jesus leads to a disembodied faith, and that remains tempting to us at times. If Jesus didn't really take on flesh, if he wasn't really fully human, then we can separate our lives spiritually from maybe our real lives, or we can compartmentalize our church life from our home life or our work life or the other parts of our lives. But the Jesus who has come in the flesh doesn't leave us that option. He repeatedly, repeatedly made the point in his teaching that what you do with your hands and what you say with your mouth are the overflow of what's going on in your heart. He calls us to this integrity that sees ourselves as a whole person instead of these segmented parts. And that means that it matters both what we believe and how we live because the two can't really be separated. John 14, 15 and through 17, Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
So first, Jesus is himself, God in flesh. But beyond that, Jesus promised that God the Spirit would dwell in those who believe in him. He would go on to say the Spirit would teach us all things and bring to remembrance the things that Jesus taught while he was ministering on the earth. And so what does the Spirit say? It says Jesus came in the flesh, he's fully human, and that reality crushes any temptation we have to believe that what happens in these bodies of ours, what we do in our lives every single day, does not matter. A disembodied Jesus can lead to a disembodied faith where we say it's only the spiritual things that matter. And so those who are hurting physically, those who are sick, those who are poor, those who are oppressed, what they need is just to know the love of Jesus. Well, yes, that's true, but that's not just us shouting it to them from a distance. That's not what Jesus modeled and isn't what he has called us to. He calls us to follow his example, to obey his commands. And when we were lost, when we were alone, when we were hurting, what did Jesus do? He stepped into the world, into the brokenness in which we find ourselves. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. And he says that what we do to the least of these who are hungry or thirsty or imprisoned, we do to him. And so the Spirit's testimony makes it clear Jesus has come in the flesh and the Spirit has come to dwell within us. Do we believe that? Do we live that out? Are we following that example. What do the witnesses say? The next witness to the stand after the Spirit is the water, which many commentators believe is a reference to the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. We read that in the Gospels early on. What is the testimony that we find there from John the Baptist? In the Gospel of John, we read it this way, John 1, 32 through 34. It says, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the testimony of Jesus' baptism was clear. Jesus is the Son of God. Not only is Jesus fully human, but he is also fully God. Mark recorded the same event with these words in Mark chapter 1, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So what does the water tell us? It tells us Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that he's more than just a great teacher or a powerful prophet. In case John the Baptist's claim about Jesus wasn't clear at his baptism, John spells it out later in his gospel in John 5, 18, saying this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Or then John 17, 5, from the mouth of Jesus himself Jesus prayed, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is the Son of God who existed before the universe was made, before time began, which means that, yes, Jesus is a great teacher. He is a powerful prophet. Those things are true, but his authority exceeds those things. It's on a different plane altogether. Those who heard him teaching in his life and ministry recognized that, and that's why they wanted to kill him. Jesus is fully human and fully God at the same time. How does that work? Well, in one sense, we don't really know how that works. That's one of those things that is beyond our ability to completely get our minds around, completely to grasp. But one of the great things about John and the biblical authors is that they seem a lot more comfortable embracing mystery than we are. And so John will just say in chapter 4, 
of 1 John, that Jesus came in the flesh, and then in chapter 5, that Jesus is the Son of God. Both of those things are true. And so how does that work? In one sense, we don't know exactly the mechanics of how that works, but in another sense, we can say that it works really well for us because Paul would write in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus makes visible what we couldn't otherwise see, the creator and sustainer and ruler of all things. A disembodied faith is dangerous, yes, but so is a denial of the divinity of Jesus. A Jesus who isn't God doesn't make sense and proves his opponents in the gospel's right that he can't be trusted because Jesus believed himself to be the son of God. And from his baptism on, his entire ministry was built upon that identity and that authority. The Spirit testifies to us that Jesus came in the flesh. The water testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. What does the third witness say? John says all three of these agree, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. John turns our attention now to the atoning death of Jesus, his blood shed for us. If the first two witnesses point us to who Jesus is, then this final one points us to what he's done for us to save us. 1 John 1, 7 says this way, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus died for our sins. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The author of Hebrews pointed us to the redeeming power of Jesus' death in this way in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, saying, for if the blood of goats and bulls And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What is the testimony of the blood of Jesus? It is that sinful people can be made clean, that those defiled by sin can be purified, that those weighed down by shame can walk free so that we can sing what the hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That is what the blood of Jesus says. And it says that if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It says the grace of God is greater than our sins. And so do we believe that? What do the witnesses say? They agree. John would have us see that we need the testimony of each of these three witnesses because a Jesus who wasn't fully human wouldn't be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. A Jesus who was not the Son of God would not be able to conquer death and command our obedience. A Jesus who would not die for our sins would not be able to cleanse us from our sin. And so these three witnesses agree. John doesn't call witnesses that contradict one another where one has to clean up the testimony of the other. Their testimony overlaps. They corroborate one another's stories. In verse 9, John wants us to know that this isn't just some stuff that he's put together, some ideas that he's throwing out there, but this is the testimony of God himself concerning his son. The Jesus who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. If we would believe three witnesses who accuse someone of a crime, then we can believe God when he testifies in this threefold manner concerning his son. And so John sums up the case for Jesus, but now he lays the options before us in verses 10 through 12. 
So we've heard the evidence, we've heard what the witnesses say. Now, where does the evidence lead us? John begins to lay out these alternatives for us to consider here. Confronted with the evidence, we can either believe in the Son of God or not. As I said before, it's not a decision we can make for anyone else. Each of us has to decide for ourselves where the evidence leads. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, John says. Romans 8.16 says that same thing. In this way, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So option one, confronted with the testimony of these witnesses, with who Jesus is and what he's done for us, option one is to believe the testimony of these witnesses. Stake your life upon it to believe that God is faithful to his word and that Jesus is his son. And this morning I would contend that this is where the evidence leads. This church is here this morning. We gather in this place this morning because we believe that this is what the Spirit says. This is where the evidence leads us. That said, this morning there is another option before us, before those who hear this testimony, before those with whom we might share the truth about Jesus. We can also choose not to believe what God says about His Son. But in making that choice, we should know what John says before us here, and that is that whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else the madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Where does the evidence lead? C.S. Lewis was right. You and I, at times, as we follow Jesus, might come to different conclusions about what Jesus would have us do in a certain situation, maybe an ethical dilemma or some sort. But one thing he's made clear, and that is who he is, that he is the Son of God in the flesh, and that he's worthy of our worship, our praise, and our obedience. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, John just comes right out and says that this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. The evidence leads us this morning to Jesus, the son of God who came in the flesh and died on the cross so that we can have eternal life, which John described in chapter one of this book as fellowship with God the Father and God the Son that makes our joy complete forever and ever. And so in the end, John sums it up about as concisely here as anywhere else in the Scriptures, that there are two paths before each of us, one that leads to life and one that does not. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so the question this morning is, do you have Jesus, the Spirit, the water, the blood, their testimony, it does not condemn us, but it can convict us. 
And so as we ask that question, do you have Jesus or do you have a disembodied version of him? Do you have Jesus or just a reflection of yourself? Or do you have Jesus or just a list of religious accomplishments? I can't answer that question for you this morning. You can't answer it for anyone else. But it certainly isn't my goal this morning to try to convince you that you don't have Jesus. That's not my goal in preaching. It wasn't John's goal in writing here in 1 John. He tells us in verse 13 of 1 John 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John isn't trying to stir us up to doubt here. He's trying to give us assurance. What does it mean to have the Son? It means to believe in Jesus and to trust Him, that He is who He claims to be and that He's done what He says He's done, that He will do for us what He says He will do. John paints a picture of the life of one who has Jesus and therefore has eternal life. It's a life that's marked by love for God and growing love for those around us. And so if you're growing in love for God and his people, John says that's evidence that you have Jesus, that you've believed in him. And so if we do that, have that this morning, then we have assurance as the hymn sings about. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness and lost in his love. This is our story. This is our song. If you have Jesus this morning, then you have a story to tell. You have a song to sing, a testimony to share with those around you. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So this morning I would ask again, do you have Jesus? You may honestly answer that question this morning with a no you never personally trusted that Jesus is the Son of God who died to cleanse you from your sin. If that's you this morning, I'll just ask you what the text is asking us this morning, and that is, what do you believe about Jesus? Are you ready to place your faith in Him today? The Spirit may be prompting you this morning to place your faith in Jesus. You might have questions about what that means. In a few moments as we sing, I'll be here to talk with you and answer any questions that you have after the service or on the screen, you'll see ways that you can respond this morning, ways that you can reach out. If you don't want to come forward in the service time this morning, there are ways you can reach out that we can begin a conversation with you about any questions you have, concerns you have, doubts you have, questions about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We would love to answer those this morning. But as we respond this morning, the question before each of us is really the same, do you have Jesus? If we do, we have a story to tell. We have a testimony to share. If not, this morning, would you place your faith in him? Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, as we, as we gather, we gather here because we believe in Jesus. We gather because of what you've done in the lives of countless women and men in the centuries since Jesus walked this earth in the flesh, God, that you've taken us who have, been, who have walked in darkness, God, and that you have shown us how, what it means to walk in the light, God, that you have given us hope and that you have given us eternal life. God, if that's our testimony this morning, then 
I pray that you would give us boldness this week to share it, that you would give us opportunities to to share that testimony of who you are and what you've done for us, God, and that we would see those opportunities for what they are and that we would not miss them, but that we we would share. God, and I pray this morning, if there's anyone who's never placed their faith in you, that this would be a time as you stir hearts this morning, God, that that we would respond in faith, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.